and welcome to Requires Improvement, a podcast by real serving actual union activists and teachers uh, aiming to critically discuss all aspects of the UK education system from an unashamedly left-wing perspective. Uh, what's going well and what really requires improvement. My name's Nick and I'm joined by my co-hosts Lee. Hello there. And Charlie. Hey yeah. Um, and also we are very uh, grateful to be joined by um, Jeremy Gilbert, uh, our famous, I suppose, I, don't know, I guess our listeners might know him from um, other podcasts like uh, ACFM or um, a new one about music and, and culture, Love is the Message. Um, but also um, just saying that Jeremy as a podcaster is under underrating his sort of <laughs> wide ranging skill and, um, and knowledge and experience of the left and culture in the UK Um generally so um thanks for being here jeremy thanks for having me um so the, the basic idea for, for this um it came from a tweet um that i saw you put out um i can't remember when a few months ago i think it was around the kind of general machinations of um covid versus teachers and the labor party versus teachers as well as the tories um versus teachers and um you started type, you started sort of saying things about how there's kind of people wonder why out of all the public sector workers teachers seem to be the easiest targets seem to be the most um attacked uh, by the toys and it seems to be like an easy thing um culturally so um i guess the kind of first question i want to ask you is um why do why do you think tories hate teachers so much Okay, well, there's a obviously it's a multi-layered question, and I mean, there's a the answer to the question is necessarily sort of multi-layered. I mean, on the most basic level, you know, the entire project and tradition of the political right has basically never really believed in, in mass education. You know, mass education had to be squeezed out of them. They don't really believe in it. Um, if they did believe in it, they wouldn't maintain. A, a private education sector, which, which all of them go to use uh, in this country, at least. So, on that level, they just don't believe in it. They've, and then why would they believe in it? I mean, it's a fundamentally the entire project of public education is a fundamentally democratic project, and the, the project of the political right, for as long as there has been such a thing as the political right, has been to resist, limit, disrupt, impede the development of any sort of democratic, social or political relations. So on that level, I mean, they're not going to like it. Um, you know, em- empowering the citizenry, empowering people who can't, af- who couldn't afford to get themselves empowered in the private sector, um, it's obviously just not in the interests of people who can afford to, basically, on some level. You know, and um, I think in, there's there's... And, and this is pretty much ubiquitous. This isn't a specifically British or, or English phenomenon. You know, I, I always remember I was in a French class at the Institut Francais about 20 years ago. Uh, it was just some afternoon French class in the summer. And uh, I got paired for some exercise with this woman who, as far as I could work out, she was basically like a gangster's mole of, of some like Russian sort of oligarch stroke, you know, gangster. And we had to have a discussion in French about whether or not we thought like mass literacy was a good idea. And obviously you were supposed to say yes. And this woman, she was being quite sincere. She said, no, 
she said if poor people can read then they just start expecting things that aren't realistic (laughs) and i think well that's a fairly you know that's a fairly clear summary of the attitude of people who've got kind of elite interest and elite identifications historically there's also there's a specific set of issues that are more specific to our time and our and our place I'd say in terms of in terms of the specific moment in history that we're in now and that we've been in for several decades to some extent there's been I mean one of the biggest one of the the, mo- the biggest challenges for the whole project of neoliberalism you know the, the project to move away from a kind of relatively egalitarian idea of the welfare state towards an idea of a society in which everybody has to compete with each other for everything all the time. One of the biggest challenges to that, you know, and this is the legacy of Thatcher and Reagan, and it's a tradition that was carried on by people like Blair, huge challenge to that ideologically, politically and socially is the fact that, well, really, if you look at the middle decades of the 20th century, Certainly in the countries that I know about, which is basically Britain and the States and to a lesser extent France, the, the very kind of formation of the modern teaching profession, the idea of a kind of nationally accredited profession of, of graduate teachers was pretty much inseparable from a historical phase in which the progressive education movement was, was, quite, was quite influential. It was influential on not just the syllabus, it's not just the ways in which teachers were trained, but the very idea of training them in the first place in, in a kind of modern sense. And this meant that, you know, by, say, the 70s, you have a situation where essentially progressive, democratic, liberal, sort of social democratic ideals are pretty much baked into the whole idea of being a teacher. You know, what it, you don't go to become a tr- to train to become a teacher if you're someone who buys the idea that the only things worth doing in life are things that generate profit for somebody, preferably you, but ideally, if not, somebody else. So the fact that you've got the entire, or more or less the entire kind of staff are one of the most socially and, and culturally important institutions in a society being run, you know, being run and staffed by people who are not for the most part sort of revolutionary socialists, but they are people who have a deep kind of ideological and material, you know, investment in values which are really, you know, inimical to the neoliberal project. It poses a massive challenge for the neoliberals, like, and it always has done. You know, the kind of the extent to which they've had to impose all kinds of sort of draconian bureaucratic measures. They've had to engage in various forms of kind of piecemeal privatisation in order to try to disrupt, to try to dismantle the sort of hegemony of a sort of progressive social democratic ideas within the school system uh, is really kind of striking. And they still have only been partially successful. And that's partly because I mean, in general, sort of neoliberal ideology has never been that successful in persuading people of its validity on a sort of abstract and theoretical level. People in, in countries like Britain have learned to accept that this is the way the world is and the world has been, that's a world that's been imposed on us. But I think one of the real tests of how far people are really kind of inculcated into neoliberal ideology is if you start talking to them about, you know, what kind of thing they think schools should do with children. 
I mean, in my experience, it's really kind of intuitive. It's really sort of instinctive. But even people who are pretty right wing on most issues think that, for example, schools have got to socialise children, at least up to a fairly advanced age, in, to be cooperative with other people, you know, to learn to share, to learn to work in groups, to not be kind of manically competitive all the time. There's a kind of basic intuitive understanding, even amongst sort of, you know, liberal Tories, in my experience, that in a capitalist society, if you don't have a sort of basically anti-capitalistic mode of education, at least for the first few years, then, then people will just be insane. You know, children would just be psychotic. And there's also a deep resistance to the idea of education for profit. It's funny, I first became aware of that actually when I was doing that same French class. Like it was, it was mostly, you know, it was me and this gangster's mall and like a bunch of ladies who lunch from Kensington. And I would talk to them about what, what was then going on in the early, this was the early years of the new Labour government and the forms of the things like the private finance initiative and the forms of privatisation that were going on uh, in, in the health and education system. And they were really shocked. And these were just sort of nice, these were like Tory ladies from Kensington, but they were really shocked. They were like, that's not what we thought people were voting. That's not what people elected a Labour government for. That isn't something even the Tory government would have tried to do. And so people just don't do have a sort of intuitive sense that, that when you ask people, well, do you want the people caring for your children in a kind of loco parentis role, six hours a day? Do you want them to be doing it for, do you want the institutions administering that to be, to be organised for profit? People have a sort of intuitive revulsion to that idea. So it's really posed a big problem. I think it's been a, it posed a huge problem. The, the very existence of the teaching profession, which they don't, I mean, ultimately, you know, if you look at the right wing attitudes and Tory attitudes to te the teaching profession, I mean, they'll, they, they'll try to deprofessionalize like any chance they get. They'll try to roll back on the very idea of having a professional teaching sort of, you know, a teachers as a social professional group, because otherwise it poses these big problems for them. So that's the kind of historical, and that's, uh, and what, uh, say, and there's also on, on a more sort of fundamental level, I mean, what is the role of teachers in our society? The role of teachers in our society is essentially to take a, they are the key, the key group of professionals and schools are the key institution, which takes on the role of socialising uh, individuals, you know, are, you know, outside of the family. So it's an absolutely key function. And the problem is, the trouble is, you know, neoliberalism is an inherently, or has been, an inherently, it's, a, it's an anti-social project. You know, it is a, it's a project to dismantle social relations, to dismantle communities, and to turn people like as much as possible, indeed, into kind of psychotic, you know, psychotic consumer competitors, like in every possible context. So there's an obvious tension and there's a huge, and there's an enormous tension which plays out in the absolute, you know, there's an absolute tension between the fact that schools, universities are increasingly under direct pressure from government to do, to, to accept no role and to take on no role other than to train students to compete in the labour market along those lines. And, but this hasn't really altered the fact that there's a wider expectation on schools and teachers that they should carry out that socialising function and they should carry it out in a way which is more or less acceptable to society that still expects that on some level children are going to leave school as human beings and not just as kind of, you know, sociopaths. So there's a real kind of, there's a basic contradiction between what, what schools are being expected to do by the wider society. They're being expected, on the one hand, they're being expected 
um, to you know to socialise children you know, in, into just being competitors in the labour market. On the other hand, they're being expected to you know to carry on uh, carry out a function of socialising them into being sort of citizens and community members in a way which is in, in basically you know, in contradiction to that objective. So, because teachers are being given a kind of completely impossible job under these circumstances, they then become a very good scapegoat for the fact that that job is impossible. You know, it's a you know, it's a sort of classic move. You give people an impossible job to do, and then the fact that it can't actually be done because it's it's just mathematically impossible, it's logically impossible. You know, becomes you know, yeah, isn't you know, rather than admit that, yeah, you sort of blame them for you you blame them for you know, for the failures. I also think there's a sort of psychosocial dynamic according to which, you know, I would say this is really typical of my generation. I'm sort of, I'm 49, you know, I'm a sort of, you know, technically, I'm technically sort of upper middle class, so I'm not really, I'm not, not going to be for much longer the way things are going either. So, um, but definitely within the sort of professional middle classes of sort of my generation, Generation X, there's this huge, there's a very completely kind of complex, contradictory kind of, I mean, I'm talking about the people who are parents now, the generation who are parents of kids at school. There's just a completely contradictory kind of bundle of attitudes towards teachers in the schools. And a lot of it does have to do with the sense that, well, we are all living in a society which is not the one any of us would have really asked for, but we've, we've had to find ways of adapting to. We've had to find ways of living in. And it's a society in which people are very anxious, very, very anxious about what the future is going to hold. They're very anxious about, uh, and they have a real sense of kind of, of lack of agency. People, people, kind of individual parents and families, you know, are very, very frightened, very, very worried. They're conscious that society is evolving in an ever more kind of, you know, antisocial direction in, in the kind of ways I've described. They don't really, and, and, you know, part of the consequence of this is that, for example, you know, people don't spend enough, feel like they have enough, they don't spend enough time with their children. They spend too, I mean, people, this is obviously different during the lockdown period, but, you know, over the past sort of few decades, the, the, the trend has been for parents to spend less time with children, for parents to let have, I mean, partly because they themselves have less time. I mean, because people do, people, working hours have kind of gone up. And so again, this sort of a, this ambivalence yeah, in, in, towards teachers who are the people who are supposed to pick up the slack for the fact that parents can't do enough parenting anymore because they don't have the material wherewithal to actually do it. That on the one hand, parents want teachers to do it all for them and they want the school system to do it all for them and they want it to do it all for them in a very transparent way, but which also places very few demands on them. So which um, encourages support for things like league tables and ratings because they're supposed to give kind of easily understandable consumer information. You know, Lee Ofsted reports, all this stuff, it's supposed to give worried parents clear information so they know that the job is being done properly by these people whose job they don't really understand and they couldn't really imagine doing. And they can therefore feel less guilty about basically not really being involved that much in their kids' education or even their kids' wider socialisation, you know, between the TV and the console and social media in the schools. Um, and so it's very easy for, for, but it then becomes, I mean, the fact that teachers themselves as individuals are the people 
who parents are most likely to interface directly with in the school system, in the wider education system, to some extent in the whole public sector, really, unless they've got serious health problems. Because, well, it becomes very easy psychologically to project those anxieties onto teachers, you know, to sort of blame teachers for things that might be going wrong. And I mean, the extent to which, I mean, the extent to which parents, in my experience, who don't themselves work in any part of the education sector, just have completely unrealistic expectations of teachers, just the expectations that they wouldn't have of any other human being, like in any other domain of life, just seems to me just sort of extraordinary and symptomatic of what I'm talking about. And then finally, there is a specific cultural issue in England, and this is different from Scotland and Wales even. But, you know, England is just historically one of the most anti-intellectual cultures in, in the world. You know, it's, a, it's an extremely anti-intellectual culture. And the reason for that is that English elite culture is historically incredibly anti-intellectual compared to other elite cultures around the world. I mean, most most social elites around the world have, have felt in other countries and other parts of the world, historically and recently, have sort of felt obliged to justify their elite state at least partly by, you know, sponsoring the arts and demonstrating their learning and kind of, you know, giving an impression to themselves and the rest of the world that they, that they know things other people don't that, that make it legitimate for them to be an elite. I mean, that's never been the case. Really. The English elite have, have always really been of the view that the only thing that, that you need to legitimate your status is, is wealth. You know, and that's the only, and therefore the only set of skills that, and the only forms of knowledge that are really valuable are ones that generate money. I mean, I always remember, I always love telling this anecdote. When I first, I mean, I, you know, when, when my best friend from home went to Cambridge, went to Cambridge in like the early nineties. I, I mean, obviously, I didn't go to Cambridge. Um, he got told within the first few weeks there, and this was a common thing for people going to Cambridge and Oxford still to be told in those days, said, well, if you want to get the best kind of job, which is a job in the city, you don't want to get a first. You don't want to get a first class because you'll just then people will just think you're an egghead. You know, you won't be clubbable. Only get a first if you want to become a don or maybe the civil service. And you compare this to places like Germany or indeed the United States, where like historically, you know, one reason there's so much, you know, the academic job market has been so much worse in the States. I mean, it's bad here now, but it's been really bad in the States for a long time because there's a massive overproduction of PhDs. But that's partly because a PhD just is a, is a social status symbol. You know, people will do, people who can afford it will do a PhD because it's considered a kind of classy thing to do. Whereas... I, mean, I remember Mark Fisher saying to me, you know, you, you'd admit you'd when we like, you know, this was in the sort of late nineties or something. You know, we'd have when, well, actually, no, we this wasn't then. We I suppose it was years later than that. But we were talking about what it was like to be a PhD student in the nineties, and he said, yeah, you'd admit to people, you'd rather admit to being a drug addict than being a PhD student at a at a party, wouldn't you? And that is, and that's very much a kind of English thing. So, of course, in a in a culture that is it just inherently anti intellectual. And again, but I would say this is specifically elite culture. I would say English working class culture historically, to the extent that it's autonomous from elite culture, isn't anti-intellectual. It's in, it become it's more anti-intellectual to the the sections of English working class culture that are anti-intellectual are the ones that are most deferential to elite culture. And um, so within an elite within English, and so in a culture in which you know elite culture is anti-intellectual, and, and the deferential sections of elite culture are anti-intellectual. Well, then again. The, the basic reason why people in most communities around the world respect their teachers, it, it, you know, is just not there. I mean, it's just not, it, it isn't something there to be valued. And I think, um, 
So those and the, and the Tories in specifically are, are being essentially now and historically to a lot, you know, to some extent, always a party of elite English nationalism. Uh, of just are uh, just pathologically anti-intellectual. I mean, just pa- absolutely pathologically anti-intellectual. It's just it's it's a, it's a substantial part of their ideology to be anti-intellectual in almost every possible way. Yeah, thanks for that. Just to, to pick up on um, a couple of things, there's loads there. Um, the point about uh, the kind of general public agreeing with the aims of education in terms of socialisation, and that's why it's really interesting. Um, with the Tories, like a big push on really, really harsh discipline. Like the Michaela School is the kind of flagship free school, and there you've got silent corridors. Um, and they're, they're putting all this money into education to ha- try and have training schools where they're going to try and teach people how to enforce silent corridors. Um, and on the last like episode, I was talking about that, and I was saying, well, no one really wants that, and I can't – you know, the resources to actually like plough that and turn that into something – I don't think is really there, but you can see that it's something they'll kind of keep whipping up and keep using it to just trash the profession whenever they need it. Or do, or do you think, because from what you were saying, it sounds like you know there's limits as, as to how far they can push these things back. But um, I don't know, when I'm in a bad mood, I kind of, I don't think that there's a limit. I think they can just turn, keep, keep turning the screws and keep making it worse and worse and worse. <laughs> Well, I mean, I think they can up to a, a point, you know, I mean, they can as long as they're, they they can keep turning the screws on teachers and, and the education system to the extent they can keep turning the screws on other sections of the public sector and the wider society. I think, I do think, um, I mean, whether there are limits or not isn't just down to what the Tories do. And it's not just down to whether a passive a passive public reacts. It's also down to whether the, the, the political organisations have the capacity to intervene in the situation, take the strategic opportunity to do so. I mean, I've taught, I've been very kind of down on the kind of, you know, the public and their attitude to teachers, but it's also partly because when nobody even tries to sort of pitch this, this really sort of from a political perspective, tries to explain to parents, you know, from a teacher's perspective, what's going on in school. There isn't any big public effort to do that. And there is also like, you know, this because precisely because of the same kind of emotional investments and emotional ambivalence I was talking about, there's also like large latent reservoirs of, of support, of, of sympathy and, and solidar- potential solidarity for teachers. But parents are not going to just spontaneously take to the streets to defend teachers. You know, the teaching unions, you know, is going to have to be willing to take to play some kind of a political role, first in educating members. You know more about you know, um, and then in and then in proselytizing to the public, and they haven't done that in this country, and it's one reason why the profession is one of the least. I mean, you know, I mean, one of the biggest differences between Britain and most other developed countries, like politically, is that the teaching profession is really you know is is much less militant here than it is in a lot of other places, and and you know all the reasons I've given are reasons why well you would think just structurally the teaching profession should be pretty militant, and it should be, but and I have to say I do put that down to sort of lack of vision, a lack of leadership. I don't know whether I could say that about the, the current political leadership because the NEU is a really new institution and it's early days and, you know, and um, I'm, I'm relatively optimistic that the NEU will, you know, be able to find a way of taking a more, you know, better organising role. But I think it's been a huge missed opportunity, in my in my opinion, over the past 30 years, actually, a huge missed opportunity in terms of intervening because a lot of what I've been describing 
is the symptom of a public just not really getting any other story about what goes on in schools other than the sort of weird folklore of an increasingly paranoid middle class and and this kind of right-wing tabloids. I mean, and the you know, Guardian's played an appalling role, appalling role you know, in just failing, A, failing to report on, on the, the, the partial privatisation of service delivery that went on under New Labour, which had no mandate, had no public mandate. Nobody voted for that. Nobody wanted it. The people should have been told it was how people just woke up one morning in 2010 and found out that the fucking exam systems have been privatised. Like if any, if anybody had said, if they'd ever put it on the front page, they're, they're, they're privatising fucking A-levels, then, you know, the, the British middle class would have been up in arms about it. But they didn't. It was tucked away on page 15 somewhere. And that was a clear editorial decision by people at The Guardian. Guardian thanks very much. It wasn't an accident. Um, the people didn't even know it was happening until it all went, you know, went to shit. So, uh, but the unions and also, I mean, the unions could have done more, in my opinion. The union leaderships could have done a lot more to publicise those kinds of issues. And, you know, the, the, I mean, in this country, it's not just the teaching unions. I mean, the public sector unions have just been appalling at are being willing to take a political play a political role in in sort of tapping public sympathy and public disquiet about um about government policy over the past few decades i think they've been really weak they've been really really weak on these issues and, that, and that's typical i think i mean the issue around discipline i mean i think it is i i, I mean i just my sense is that kind of the, your typical british voter just has no clue what they think about things like silent corridors. Really, they'll just they'll they'll pretty much agree with the last thing they heard about it for for sort of understandable reasons, really. Because on the one hand, people do it is sort of tr on the one hand, people sort of know that well, you know, part of the problem. I mean, one problem for like some of the most disadvantaged like children is that they you know they don't really have they don't have stable familial structures. They 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 don't they're not kind of taught the skills of sort of self regulation and self-discipline that you get like if you go to eat and you have to you've got like your, your day timetabled for you sort of 16 hours a day for months like it does teach you to sort of get shit done sometimes when you have to and like it is an issue that like young people in a society where parents don't have enough time and energy for them they've got corporations trying to make money out of their attention like 24 hours a day you know who don't, young people who don't have those kind of structures and institutions um, don't have the kind of resources being devoted to kind of, in some sense, protecting them from you know capital. Basically, yeah, they do have a, they do have a problem, and I, and I think it's an easy it's in it, it, it. I understand the logic which leads people to go from a kind of intuitive sense of all that to think, oh well, actually, if you teach them discipline, like, if you teach them hard discipline now, like it'll be better. You know, at least they'll be socialised, at least they'll be functional, at least they'll be able to kind of operate. And also the other thing is that I think we all know as people who've worked in education, at the end of the day, didactic to you know, didactic to a syllabus, authoritarian top-down teaching is just much less it's just much less resource intensive than a student-centered, participatory, democratic, you know, um, teaching. It's much less resource intensive. So there's a huge incentive and there's a huge, there's a kind of material and, and to some extent a sort of ideological incentive for people to, I think, to sort of believe this story when they hear it, which is, that, well, actually, we, we, it's good for, it's for their own good, silent corridors and what have you. On the other hand, it's also true, as you say, you know, if you say to people, if you don't say, if you don't say to people, I think, 
silent corridors, you know, stern discipline, you know, isn't this, this is what we want, isn't it? This is how we're going to fix things. If you don't say, if you say to people, look, what kind of an environment do you want, do you think we should be giving to students at school? They won't describe, you know, one of those schools. They won't describe, you know, those kind of um, authoritarian academies. You know, they're all, you know, the vast majority of people will actually, if you just ask them from scratch, describe your ideal school, you know, it would be a progressive community school. But progressive progressive community schools, you know, done well are really resource intensive. And, you know, and more than that, you know, really they require a degree of like investment from parents that they don't, that most, a lot of parents don't feel able to make and don't feel are kind of a bit scared of the thought of making. So I think there's this sort of fantasy and I, and I th- that people have that there's an easy solution. There's some easy solution, and the easy solution, you know, some, the easy solution, and one of the easy solutions that people like to fantasize might actually work is, you know, silent corridors. But I think your 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 key point is absolutely right that people's in as much as some people are kind of attracted to that as an easy solution, more people just have an instinctive revulsion to the idea that. That's how you should treat children. Because I think, I mean, this is something I've, I've thought for a long time, but like one of the great untapped resor- ideological resources for the left in Britain is that the English people still do have a, a, a basically romantic and sentimental attitude to childhood. Uh, and that's, and uh, capitalism is a brutally un- unromantic and unsentimental force. Which- but most people hate school, though, is the, is the problem, isn't it? It's like childhood good, but school kind of bad. Well, that's true. Well, that's true. And I think, you know, that's true. But they like dossing around. There's some bits of school maybe that are that are good, but that's it's nothing to do with the education bit. Well, I think that's, I don't know. Is it true that most people hate school? I don't know. Just, I think a lot of... I, I teach. Uh, <laughs> no, it's not. No, you're right. It's not true. But again, it's that thing and maybe it's just easier to be negative about something um, than positive. But I do think educa- I do think school ruins education for quite a lot of people. I think it kind of, it definitely puts them off for life. Um, Yeah, I'm sure that's true. But I'd come back to the point that's partly because, I mean, relatively few people have an experience of school that is resourced at a level. Yeah. But like, yeah, most people... I mean, most people in Britain don't have experience of what school is like if it's resourced at an OECD average level. You know, just like a normal country. You know, I mean, that's... Um, that's part of it. I mean, we don't, and it, it, you know, there was a brief period under New Labour, to be fair, when schools in this country were being resourced at something like a kind of hit, uh, something like an internationally normal level. But most people just don't have that experience, do they? So it's not going to be. And um, and of course, you know, t- you know, teachers are sort of, teachers are often blamed for this because you know teachers are sort of you know expected to work mirror you know teacher it's sort of expected to work miracles in terms of you know, making making a system work which is, which is just chronically under resourced because that's another thing that is endemic to English political culture and has been for decades you know the people just and it is partly as much as anything it's the fault it's the fault of the media and the fault of the level of education people have about politics but it's also it's really not normal it's not normal that people can't get their heads around the idea well if you want services you have to pay for them like in most countries you you have a block of people who don't want to pay for them but they're happy to accept that they won't get the service 
um, you know, they're right wing, they're libertarians, they want to go to the private sector, or they accept you have to pay taxes. It's, it is a specific. I've, it's a specific. I can't. It was a, quite a long time ago now. Maybe it was decades ago. And now I saw this research, but the discrepancy between the level of people, service people thought they were entitled to, and the level of tax they were willing to pay for it was like higher in England than in any, in any other country with like mass literacy. I guess it's sort of weird in, in my area where I teach. There's um, there's a school that was uh, put on TV um, as part of a documentary, a BBC documentary, and uh, in that in that uh, in that area, sort of a couple of years before, um, we were pretty active on doing loads of stuff about school funding. Like we had a meeting. How many people came to that meeting, Lee? You know. That, Easily 300. Yeah, it's like parents turning up to like a hotel uh, hotel conference room type thing um, in a you know rural area, which you know takes a couple of hours to drive across sort of thing. Um, you know, like good good take up at kind of uh, protests and things. Like had a huge huge rally in Bristol. Then the school was in was on the BBC. Like whole school community like sending in donuts to teachers, being like, oh my god, I didn't realise your lives were so depressing kind of thing oh look at all this funding cuts oh it's all terrible this impossible job you're supposed to do and then this area that was like traditionally lib dem in a kind of southwest like the southwest folks lib dem kind of way they went tory in 2017 and then they went even harder tory in 2019 so the whole community like completely aware of these things they even after the tv show they they um and they started up a school friends thing and uh and um, but you know um, we were sort of infiltrating it union wise and trying to get them talking about look come on these are political issues and they were trying to talk about like fundraising and doing a bit of gardening and just trying to explain to them the difference between the chasm of the amount of money that is being hacked away and it's lovely that you want to come in and weed the flower beds and it's lovely that you know your mate can help fix the broken window but really that is like is absolutely nothing and like they were fully aware of that <laughs> but they just carried on voting Tory. And, I, and that's the thing the Tories are kind of getting that. I mean, maybe that's where the campaign has sort of worked is that the Tories know what to say to those parents. Like, oh, no, we are giving you money. We are. It's just you can't see it. It's in this weird way and it is actually better. But trust us. But then people actually do trust them, which is frustrating. Well, I think you're right. But I think also people just don't vote on education for the most yeah. part, you know, people just don't vote. It's just not the, th it's not what cephalogists, cephalogists call a salient issue for people. Even when they say it is, even when they say it is, or a focus group or a, or a publisher, because they know they should think it is, there's not much evidence. I mean, I would say the one, the exception to that is the 97 election. That was after 18 years of unbroken Thatcherism and literally the room, like, People were literally seeing their kids in schools with leaky roofs. Like there, there were, you know, the, the rain was coming into class. I've got a leaky roof to show you at, at the school. <laughs> literally guttering on the inside. Gutter on the inside goes into a bin at the front and the site team take it away. I can see so many leaky roofs. Well, I think there are, you know, there are limits. Historically, there are limits. I mean, but the limit, I mean, you asked what the limit is. I mean, on past experience, it's nearly 20 years. Right. So <laughs> okay. that's the limit. You know, <laughs> that's the limit. Roll on 2030. Yeah, eventually, eventually, people will get pissed off that the schools are literally falling down in front of them. But, um, I mean, it's true. It did become a. I mean, it did become a really salient issue for the in the ninety seven election. It was it was a huge issue for New Labour. Then it you know, partly they had to neutralise a load of other issues. But 
I don't know what you do about that. I mean, apart from, I don't know what you do about it, but apart from you, the unions becoming more proactive and kind of trying to raise it as an issue and trying to sort of politicise yeah, the I mean, we've tried, Yeah, we've tried to do work with like um, ACORN and it's always seen as, it's always mentioned as a part of a successful campaign is to get the community involved. But it's quite hard because where is where is the community? Um, and also, again, like I said, they, they don't want to politicise it. They, they, their idea of what politics is and isn't is so poor that when you try and talk to them about it, they just think it's politicising. Although I have been in a meeting with um, parents around a strike where they, you just suck, people were like laying out the the reasons why the strike was happening and um, the parents fully understood. They were, the parents were sort of standing up in the meeting going, so what you're saying is that academies are really pointless and don't actually help our kids. It's like, yeah, we've been saying that for years, but you know, it's the kind of thing you've got, maybe you've just got to learn it through struggle. But you know, they actually, you know, the, the kind of cogs are clicked in their head and they were sort of, um, they were getting it. I mean, but then the problem is that we found is that it's really hard to get a general parent kind of thing going because it's not necessarily in the parents direct material interest that the other school is doing okay. So like things around based around certain schools work, you know, in a, I guess in a structure, if you're talking about McAlevey stuff, that works. Um, but again, that's hard because they seem to kind of exist and then disappear again. I mean, Moulscombe Primary is the good example of that. But. The reasoning I heard explained to me about why it's sort of that the parents who are there appear and disappear is to do with, yeah, the, the simple fact that, you know, their children are literally going up and up in the year group. So things like the um, SATS boycott is something that's been some people talk about for years and years and years, but it's so hard to get a year four or five parent uh, on board with it, or even someone maybe if we're looking at um, the key stage two, oh, sorry, the year two SATS, um, making that something that's something to rally around it's really hard because they don't care so much. They don't realise how much their children are already actually being pressured, how much everything they're learning is already gearing towards the SATs, so all the things that are getting left behind because they're not um, testing the SATs. And by the time it comes to year six and they realise what pressure it's putting on, they're on board, they're on board, but then it's already a bit too late. Obviously not everyone is exactly like that, um, but it does kind of encapsulate the, the struggle um, to get parents to be on board longer term. Yeah, well, that's a really good point. I mean, that's historically, that's always been a problem with relying actually on, on students and or parents in any part of education as the only constituency who, who would going to be potentially, you know, in solidarity with professionals because they're just, just the fact that it's inherently, you know, it's an inherently temporary cohort. And um, I think they do have to always be the starting point for the reasons I kind of set out. But I suppose now this is saying something slightly different. It's probably, I can think of at least two completely contradictory things to say, actually, which I think are both sort of true in relation to what we've been saying. And it also slightly contradicts what I was saying earlier. As well as thinking that the t the unions, uh, I mean, as well as thinking the unions need to get to the, I mean, maybe I, it, this is something I still think the unions should be taking a lead on. But I think there is also, there's a problem that the wider left doesn't treat the education, doesn't treat education as a, as, as a key issue and as a key site of struggle. In, in my opinion, actually. So, Hence this podcast. <laughs> yeah, well, I think it's really important. It's a really important point that, and I think it is one, I think, you know, it's, I mean, it could have been, you know, you can imagine a world, a different world, a world in which, you know, 
from between 2015 and 2019, for example, a critique of the neoliberalisation of schools was a much more explicit and upfront element of Labour's kind of political discourse, which I don't remember them saying anything about it at all. All I remember is Jeremy saying kids should get to do music at school, which is good, had, which I yeah. agree with. But We had to fight on everything, like all the academy stuff, it was fought and fought and fought and they, they just didn't yeah. seem to get it. That was the, that was the feeling in union circles. Um, and it was only- wasn't it Angela Rayner was the education secretary? Well, it was partly a yeah. Yeah, partly because Angela couldn't didn't didn't give a said she wasn't interested in structures. Yeah, to which one might say structures are still interested in you. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I think um, yeah, no, that was. I mean, it was yeah. I mean, that that it was a problem. But I think it's also you know I think I think it should be treated as a you know. The school system should, the schools in particular, should be seen as a kind of key issue by the wider left, you know, including people who aren't at school anymore and don't have kids at the moment. You know, it should be treated as a much bigger issue. Yeah, I mean, it's easy to say that. I mean, the same, I mean, I would say the same about historically, you know, you can think about issues like pensions that like nobody took any interest in who wasn't directly affected by it. And now it, now it affects everybody. The other thing I would say, though, is I do think. I think especially at the current juncture, you know, I don't, I don't see, I see any, I don't see much chance of this happening, but I don't think that Johnson's sort of English nationalist Tories, although, as I say, they're, they're philistine and anti-intellectual, they don't have any particular ideological commitment to neoliberalism as such. Yeah, they're conservative, they're pro-capitalist. Uh, I don't think, if, if there was a mass campaign you know, to effectively, you know, halt and reverse the neoliberalisation of the education system that was able to present itself as non-party political, it would probably get a lot of support and it'd probably get a lot of traction. I think if it was able to tap into that instinctive feeling that is, you know, of a lot of a lot of you know, a lot of parents and a lot of the public, the 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 the, the, the you know that a lot of the um, a lot of the changes to the school system haven't really been ones anybody voted for or anybody really wanted. And they're not ones that anybody would vote for. And that education should be a sort of protected area. Then I think it would probably have some traction. I don't see that happening, partly because I don't see it happening. But I think it's interesting as a thought experiment because I think that I think it, I think you're, I mean, you're right. You have sort of hit, hit on an important point from the, the, I, I just don't think I don't think the right has been that successful in terms of actually sort of hegemonising sort of people's individual common sense about education. Uh, but they have all. But also, people just don't vote on it as a salient issue. You can't, it's very hard to get people to to go out and change the way they're going to vote because of what's going on in schools, rather than immigration or whatever, or you know, house house prices, which are the. Wouldn't you say though that even. <sighs> I sort of see what you're saying with the idea of, of a complete um, change of direction is possible. But given the fact that if it was going to really be positive for the children in terms of, of anything like what we're talking about, it would probably require really like reducing the workload on all educators and fundamentally throwing in so much money into a things like uh, what you talk about, those, you know, those schools that are remotely like what our ideal schools would be. Um, that it's probably if you sort of take that idea that they are, that the toys be willing to change or at least the current toys to be willing to change it's much more likely that they'd go down a more automated route for the fact that one it it disenfranchises 
educators from making those decisions um, and being in, in control of what's being taught even more. And also because it gives the opportunity to line the pockets of their best mates. Yeah, I'm sure that's true. Yeah, I'm sure that's true. I mean, I mean, the thing they are really committed. They're not particularly committed to sort of classical neoliberalism, but they're completely committed to everything. Everything being a kind of profit opportunity, and so I think they would. You know, you're right. I don't think they would. You know. I think that you could imagine them delivering, they could imagine them massively increasing education spending actually and delivering the kind of schools people would like, but they wouldn't be public schools anymore. They would, they'd be giving all that money to some company, to some company. So, but I don't think, I think that's a kind of pretty pointless thought experiment anyway, because it just isn't going to happen. We don't have a kind of political culture in which it's really possible to imagine the kind of mass, mass campaign around education that isn't party political. I think, you know, you know I think it's probably, in terms of where we're actually at, politically and historically, and where we could get to. I think it's more of a, it's more of a, a sort of achievable goal. I think, as I said earlier, to get, firstly, to get the NEU to educate its own members um, better, and um, secondly, because because in my experience, most teachers don't, even most teachers don't have a very systematic grasp of neoliberalism. They they they're conscious of its effects and they don't like them, but they don't. They have no real awareness that it's been it's part of a highly organised international project that's been going on since the seventies. So that and for me, that's just a no brainer. I mean, it's not you know any. I mean, the education unions should have done this years ago. They should have just given people literature about this, the international school reform movement and the fact that it's just a you know, it's a blatant it's just a blatant project by American funded think tanks and corporations. So that stuff is there if you're if you're active, like it's in the reps training. They talk about the germ, um, and it'll be part of conference and things like that. But I guess it's the yeah, it's the kind of how you get it into members' heads. It should, be rammed, it should be rammed down the throats of the rank and file, you know. It should be... You should... They just don't read their emails, though. So that's... <laughs> it's, yeah, it's that thing. I mean, you know, we try and do that locally, and, like, we're involved in Bristol Transformed, and, you know, we're, we're doing... We're, we're, we're educating, like, ourselves and, you know, going going one extra little arm's reach out. But you are right that it needs to be going straight to members. I mean, even things like anti-racist education like the fact that the fact that i still get given a lesson that's like what are, what are the pros and what are the cons of immigration you know i still i'm supposed to teach a lesson like that and i just throw it out the window and put on david on a documentary instead you know the fact that that gets through the fact that there were other teachers teaching that lesson last friday um is bad you know same same with climate stuff again like members are not there but i think it's just so it's just our, our bandwidth as union reps is so already so limited. We're already fighting like multiple defensive, multiple defensive campaigns like all the time. And then when we're not fighting a defensive campaign, you're kind of like, oh, okay, let's just not let's just not do anything. No, call these extra meetings and stuff. Whereas like I've seen so Vic who he didn't win the Black Educators um, uh, executive role this time around, but I've seen he, he sent me resources he's used in staff meetings where he's sort of, sort of said, look, you know, riding the crest away of the BLM stuff, but said, look, look, we have a union meeting. We're going to talk about directed time and all this other stuff. We're also going to say, here's some basics of anti-imperialist, anti-racist education and just jamming it there in a, in a, in a union meeting, uh, which I think is really interesting. 
And what is it? Well, what is the, the three of you would like to happen? I mean, what what do you think people who are listening to the podcast could do, like to contribute to, a, a, you know, improving the situation for either the kind of you know political organisation around education or raising consciousness or. I mean, I, I want to pick up on what you were talking about in terms of the the dovetailing of anti-intellectualism and people's anxiety, because I think there is a correspondence between those two forces, because I see it in both my students and the parents and the communities that I serve. Um, and I think where we've been most effective in local actions is that we've, we've become the way of solving that anxiety. And we have emphatically made a case that is both emotional and intellectually coherent. Um, it's just then projecting those wins out onto a much bigger scale is, is, a, is a Herculean task. Um, and I think it does require a lot of the, the things that you've, you know, Jeremy, you, you've mentioned, you know, it requires a confluence of union leadership, external political support, people who are not directly connected to the school community investing in it. Um, I think the vision is there, but the ways of articulating it and the ways of manifesting it are still in their infancy. I mean, we are working on it, you know, like I think, you know, the, the people that I work with on union stuff, we are privileged to have even had the wins we have because you can meet a trade unionist who's never won anything and, and, and how they still, you know, keep, keep their spirits up is, 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 is a testament to their character. Um, but, you know, we, we want <laughs> the shopping list of everything we've discussed. We want an organized rank and file who are self-confident and believe in their rights and how those rights are connected to a good education for children because they're inseparable, you know, and, and, you know, then we provide them with the toolkit to self-organize and, 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 you know, it can't be about necessarily leaders. It can't be, you know, if, if it, perhaps if there's one lesson that we could draw from the Corbyn project is that if we invest everything in leadership, we're fucked, you know, <laughs> but Hey, that's just my thoughts. You know, I, I, I guess I, I still believe, but the sum total of this conversation does, does, make it clear how, how difficult the task is in front of us. What are you, Charlie? Um, I would say that the best answer I've ever come up with to that question of like what I could do was this podcast. Like it, the idea came from the fact that um, I don't really feel like I've got the time to read lots and lots. And I know that there is stuff out there. I listen to things a lot more than I read. And so I listened to things like Navarra, you know, loads of political podcasts, whatever's out there. And I just wasn't finding anything education-based, but I felt like I knew a few people who could start that up. Um, so we're getting the word out there. But the other benefit of this podcast and of other things that we do as part of the union is trying to make sure that we are, I mean, this is going to sound labor to say empowering, but to say, yeah, empowering slash generally making people more confident in anything they've got to say and hearing those same ideas from other people to kind of build on that and to generally make them able to get the message out, whether that's in their staff meetings, whether that's as parents to other parents, whether that's as students, you know, the list goes on. Um, so whatever we figure out, if we forget, if we figure out like more to this plan that we can get that word out quite quickly. So as soon as we've got a better idea, that can be out there very soon. But for now, this is this is as far as I go with it, and I'm welcome to more ideas. Yeah, I mean, I, I my thing is, um, yeah, just more of the kind of deep organising training 
really and like getting people skilled up in that because I think that's a few kind of quite simple techniques that no one can really argue with you don't have to be that political to understand why those techniques work you know find the leaders make it it, what was it um uh tell them it's their union and then act that way you know actually making people actually engage in democratic decisions is is empowering it doesn't have to be that political you kind of cut through a lot of the kind of negativity and baggage if you if you keep it simple um being really strategic making sure that you've spoken to everyone um having simple things to build confidence you know, all, the, all those kind of like simple steps that um are really doable but again it takes like quite a lot of time to actually do it alongside a job i mean i, I possibly would argue that like, we're lucky in the southwest are like paid organizers as union bureaucrats are really helpful and, and brilliant and they, they give us loads of support maybe that's not the same everywhere but I, I think there could be more paid union organizers who actually do the organizing and i'm not saying you take it out of the hands of reps and it's important to all be done with lay members but just in terms of things like building a committee like a, a big part of the neu like a problem is like the capacity on the the branch district committees is really limited because the meetings have are sort of really mired in this very old formal style of doing things which i think works perfectly when you've got trots versus tankies and like really violent battles which is what the unions were going through like decades ago but it's, but at the moment it's just like it's quite off-putting and it's really hard to get people to to engage like the committees that are very active have loads of people and they can get they can do loads of stuff but again Lord, the other committees without that democratic engagement from other teachers is just really you can't you again you're just defensive you you can't you can't be proactive and you can't link into the into the communities if there's like six tired looking men in a room and they're talking about how do we how do we get the the people of this little shire to 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 rise up and you know tell tell the the neoliberal shields to go and do one it's like well I don't know. I've never met anyone from this county. <laughs> I live in Bristol. Yeah. Well, I suppose one thing. I mean, one thing that comes out of this conversation for me is that you know the the importance of the wider left, also just continuing to commit to general political education, because I think that that to challenge that's the only way that that culture of anti intellectualism can be challenged. Really, it can only be challenged in, in practice, and it doesn't have to mean just talking about like schools policy. I just generally the very existence of projects like like World Transforms, you know, act as a kind of challenge to a sort of elite anti intellectualism, which then feeds into the rest of the culture, and it really affects how people think about schools. I think. I think, because um, if that challenge, if that elite anti-intellectualism isn't going to be challenged from the left, it isn't going to be challenged from anywhere. Like no one else is going to do it. And I think it was, and it really wasn't challenged for dec- for several decades, actually, in my experience. It wasn't, you know, even, even the sort of, you know, the sort of extra parliamentary activist left went through a, a long, I would say 20 years of being just deeply anti-intellectual. And I, and I would even I would I would actually say that was because it was completely dominated by sort of you know middle class people with a, with a sort of NGO mentality basically, who were 
I think this is an important thing, actually. Hopefully, I think maybe for this is, I already said, we've said this several times, and I said it earlier, but this is, I'm hoping people listening, this might be something for people to say, take away that's useful and probably useful analytical perspective for teachers. Is that I would really hammer home that in my experience, you know, that, and on the basis of my, you know, political and historical analysis, that English anti intellectualism is a middle class phenomenon. It's not an organically working class phenomenon. You know, the English middle classes think that because they went to university to an elite university for three years, they should never have to learn anything new again. You know, and, and um but in my experience, that's something that is imposed on working class communities from the outside. It's not a spontaneous response. And I think, and I think it's important. I think it's useful to have that as a perspective sometimes. I mean, I say that as someone who's, you know, ninety percent of the students I've taught have been, you know, working class, been from working class backgrounds and communities, and um, they've always been more, you know, I mean, they've been self-selecting in kind of specific constituencies. But that is something that is it's tied up to a culture of deference. It's not, I think it's easy because I think it's easy for people to get frustrated and it's easy for people to, to sort of feel that it's just endemic in the culture. Because I think it really does come from the top down. I think it's, it can be easier to challenge than it looks when you have that perspective, I think. I think, I think in uh, some, I'll just say this, yeah, to reply, Jeremy, then Charlie. I think we're actually at an advantage with teachers because in terms of union stuff, like the events we do, it's like trying to teach people something and build a bit of a community and encourage people to be, to be reps and possibly even, you know, upskill their teaching in, in some way. I can imagine, you know, in the RMT, for example, or like in, in Unite for, you know, or, or with, with nurses or with unison, it, it can be quite hard to like, how do you engage union members on a political level? Like how do you link their profession to their, to their politics, to this wider thing? You know, it makes sense for us to be offering, climate change to do a conference on climate change yeah that's true i mean i'd say that's true now but i think it's important to understand that's relatively recent i mean you know historically the teaching unions in this country considered themselves professional associations they didn't even consider themselves unions like um it's only really the late 80s like under the, the really direct assault from thatcherism that they even really start to acknowledge that they are actually trade unions representing a, a category of workers. Like before that, they wanted to think of themselves as professional associations. So I think it's really, I mean, I think what you're saying is true, but it's also recent. And, um, you know, and I think, I, I think it's relatively recent. I don't know what we draw from that observation. I don't, it's not really, I don't know if that, what the strategic implication of that is for us now. I think it's just, um, you know, there was a lot of resistance to that kind, to any sort of politicisation amongst teachers, like his, historically, relatively recently. So we're, we're not really. I suppose it's. All, I suppose the point partly is that you know these things are always changing. You know, these things are always part of ongoing processes. I'm trying to think. I was going to say something in response to your, your comment about the you know this being. I think it really. I mean, I think whether it's difficult or not to do the kind of edu- education and organising what you're talking about. I don't think it does depend on on the type of job. It depends on the historic organising culture in those institutions. So the RMT, for example, has an incredibly high level of political education, like incredibly high level of political consciousness, and that's because going right back to the nineteenth century, like railway men have always railway men were always radical, you know. Railway, and the, there's a, and there's there's like generations of communists, you know, in the 
ranks of the RMT. So I think it really depends on, I think it's more kind of sector specific and it depends on the organizing traditions within the, that sector. So, and I think from that point of view, I think teach, I think, you know, organizing within the teaching sector has made really significant advances actually in the, in the past, like in, the, in recent decades, just the past few years. I think it's come, because it's come from a very low point historically. Yeah, it's come from a really low point. I mean, if you go back to the early 80s, you know, teachers in, you know, you compare the, the level of organisation of militancies teachers in Britain to like the, the States or France, it's just, it's like a completely different, it's just like a completely different universe. And so we have actually made significant advances from that perspective in, in terms of organising teachers. Mm. That's good to know. Good to think about. Charlie? Oh, I had so many different questions that like ran through my mind. So I'm going to try and pick up on all sorts of different um, threads. Um, but thinking about like the sort of anti-intellectual, is something in that term, in terms of the UK being the place where we're almost anti-intellectual, but only in that sort of middle part. England, of England, England sorry, UK. sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> England specifically, fair enough. Um, like, yeah, there's so many different sort of challenges to tackling that. When I think about it in my own life, um, I sort of started to become like more anti-intellectual, I suppose, but at the same time, I wanted to be only in certain small ways. I don't know if you would agree that even someone sort of anti-intellectual have certain small things that they feel confident in that like are sort of exceptions to the rule. Maybe, I don't know if, uh, if you'd agree with that. Um, but when it comes to things I'm not so confident in, um, the things that sort of held me back is times in my education where I felt like I, I failed, I didn't do so well, dropped out of uni and things like that. Um, but also just seeing, yeah, in my 20s, people who just already seemed to so, know so much more um, and feeling like I didn't have the literal time of day to ever catch up, feeling like, yeah, that, that if I was to... Well, I'll get your feedback now. <laughs> um, feeling like, yeah, that sometimes you go to introductory remarks and there's somebody who's read the entire works so who just wants to show up to, you know, make sure that they get listened to. And like, yeah, so this is a culmination of all sorts of different threads of thoughts and questions. But I guess my thoughts is, yeah, what do you think to that? What can we do? Well, I think the, I, I think there is a, a fairly simple answer to that. Well, I mean, I was taught, you know, I mean, I came from a really sort of complicated class background, you know, my, my parents and my stepdad were all kind of public sector, low paid public sector professionals that there were people in my family who'd written books that my dad's family had all, you know, had been pretty working class. But I mean, I was first taught sort of actual Marxist and socialist theory by, you know, in, in casual terms by, you know, friends of my dad in, when he lived in St. Helens in, in the early 80s who were trade unionists. Uh, and I do, I always remember like sitting, I was actually sitting in a pub. My dad wasn't even there. I was being minded by one of his mates, like with, with his mate, I mean, sitting in the pub with my dad's mate Mick and two of his kind of trade union mates. And they were talk, they were talking about politics. And one of them turns to me and says, says, do you understand what we're talking about? And I said, some of it. And he said, if you ever hear a word you don't know, son, just ask. There's no shape in it. Just ask a word you don't know. And that was part of the culture. It was a part of an autodidactic working class culture in which you were taught not to be ashamed that you hadn't yet learned a certain thing because it, everybody knows you know that's not what learning is learning isn't like the act just you know learning is it's an ongoing process it's not a marker of it's and it wasn't to be treated as a sort of marker of status 
And I say that I, the idea that well, somebody is to be judged on the basis of their knowledge, you know, or not. Someone to be sort of judged as if somebody's character is equivalent to it. You know, that is a sort of bourgeois concept. That's a bourgeois concept, and it's not an intellectual concept. It's not a sort of you know, an intellectual in the positive sense doesn't think that. An intellectual is not somebody who thinks. Well, my knowledge, the knowledge I've got is something that marks me out as like it's better than other people. And that's why I've got it. You know, an intellectual values knowledge and understanding for its own sake and for no other reason to some extent. And so I think it is, um, I would say in a sort of complex way, you know, I think that, that, that those feelings of inferiority, you know, and that, and that tendency for people not, you know, to have a particular kind of relationship to what knowledge they've acquired, that it's, that it's essentially a kind of badge of a certain kind of hierarch, you know, hierarchical status. You know, that is all, those are all part of the same complex, which really is subtended by a sort of a, a basically anti-intellectual attitude. And I think, you know, so I would say the way to, that challenging anti-intellectualism is partly about inculcating in people a sense of curiosity, but, but also, yeah, lack of not, you know, I think absolutely not having any sort of shame about you know not knowing things or not sort of getting you know getting things wrong so i think it is really important i think i think you're completely right it does touch on something really profound but i would say that that is the product of an i know it sounds odd it sounds counterintuitive to say it's the product of an anti-intellectual culture that people feel ashamed for their ignorance but i think it is because in a culture that really values learning that learning is recognized as a, a process that is never finished for anybody basically like nobody knows enough in a culture that really everybody already knows that nobody can ever know enough in a, in a culture that really values learning and conversely i would say that the idea you know the reverse of that is a culture in which lots of people think that there is there isn't enough that you can learn and it's what you learn on a, on a degree in politics philosophy and economics at oxford you know that's the that's the enough that's enough if you've learned that much you've learned enough and, you've, and if you've known because also you know, in a, you know, if you've learned more than that there's, in our culture, there's also something wrong with you in English elite culture. You know, it's really not considered, you know, the, the attitude of journalists, the attitude of not just journalists, in my, but in my experience, like most people. And again, I mean, I'm saying this because, you know, in my, in, my, in my experience, this kind of attitude of not liking, not liking people using long words, not, li not liking any kind of overly complicated analysis, not liking any kind, not liking having to read books. Like it's not, in my experience, yeah, it, it may be present in working class culture, but it's endemic in like the culture of people who run NGOs, for example. Because the people who run NGOs think mostly, in my experience, think they learned everything. They're, they would they th their attitudes i learned everything i needed to learn at university you know that's why i'm here that's why i'm now a member of the kind of the upper middle class that's what defines me as such so if somebody comes along and starts talking about something they don't know about or they haven't heard about before then they get really really angry Whereas in my experience, like unless people have had that sort of shame, sort of you know, inculcated into them, then you know people from less elite backgrounds, in my experience, I mean maybe it's just the people I've met, but you know they're they're less angry at being pre pre presented with some new bit of knowledge. Does that make sense? Well, as I was going to say the, the the school system does quite a lot of random people failures. That is the problem. Like baked into the system is that you know whatever forty percent of kids don't pass primary school, 40% of kids don't pass their GCSEs. You know, there's people writing exam papers constantly where, you know, was it some exam papers were like 50% of the paper you expect the kids, most of the kids to get those answers wrong. 
Like it's just to create, you know, the amount of failure uh, and just not being good enough that kids have to go through in school it does kind of toughen up the shell around them where they just don't, where a lot of them don't want to try. Yeah. yeah. No, well, of course. Well, it's designed, it's designed to make people hate learning. It's designed to make people hate the experience of learning and, and to feel that it can only be an experience of failure and it, it can it can be something you don't want to engage in. But that may, if you think about what's involved, what that means, that's one you know, part of the fundamental mechanism, certainly of neoliberalism, to some extent of any kind of hierarchical system, and, and definitely based forms of capitalism, is to make people afraid of their own power. Now, that's how I always conceptualise this. Now, what does it mean to be af- people? You want you don't just want people to be afraid of the people above them or outside of them. You want people to be afraid of their own potential, afraid of their own power, like, especially their own collective power. So, what do you do? So, of course, you want people to feel. You absolutely want people to feel that like, the the process of learning is a fearful process rather than a joyful process. You want people to feel, be you know, to you want people to feel that way. And it, and of course, it's been absolutely you know. And that has been, there's been all a huge amount of work, you know, done to try and turn the education system into that, like during the neoliberal epoch. I mean, I always tell people, I always, I mean, my students are always amazed. I say, look, I didn't sit a formal exam until I was, until I did my GCSEs in school. I went through primary and secondary school. We had mock GCSEs at the end of what was then called fourth year secondary school but they were just an internal school thing they weren't mandated by the state i didn't sit a mandated like national exam until i was 16 and when i was at school this was in the 80s you know when i was at school we used to talk about the 11 plus teach people would tell us about the 11 plus the same way they would tell us about kids going down coal mines now, this was like a terrible thing that could never come back. You know, that, oh, you'd have to sit an exam when you're 11. You know, and it would decide what school you go to. No, people, no, really. People just, yeah. just people, the teachers, the teachers, and, you know, we basically had quite lefty teachers. They'd tell us about us and we'd sit there like open mouthed. It was like being told, like, oh, you had to work in the fields and be strapped to a donkey or something. You know, it, wasn't, <laughs> it was like, and no one, and also, and it was, it was also the case. You know, again, students are really amazed when I tell them this. You know, I went to university in the early nineties. You know, it was it was still the case then that you know I knew lots of people who only went to university to do like law or, or medicine or whatever because they thought they were, they wanted to make money. But it was considered shameful to admit that. It was considered shameful to admit that you were choosing a university subject on the basis that you thought it would it would raise your salary. When you when you were older, it was it was it was a part of even a sort of liberal Tory, not a really hard that's right, but even your sort of liberal Tory would consider it sort of vulgar and philistine to say, "Well, I'm choosing a university degree on the basis of what I think will get me a higher salary." You was you were even if you didn't mean it, you were expected to say, "I'm doing I'm really interested in this subject, like I'm doing it for the sake of the subject. I'm doing it because I I really want to study it." And it's kind of extraordinary the extent to which that's changed. I mean, now we all know, now it's considered, it's perverse and it's kind of punished if, if students say, well, I, I want to study something I want to study rather than because it's going to, you know, because it's going to raise my salary. And they're, they're actively trying to shut down any any degree program that won't legitimate itself or, on the basis of graduate salaries. Like if they won't, and this is, but the, give how much that has changed in that period is also an indicator of how much things can change. 
So there's nothing to say, you know, no one, no one thought when I was like at school, we would come back to mandatory selection, you know, mandatory exams and selective schools. And, you know, nobody thought you would be able to get away with privatising the exam system. And nobody thought you'd be able to get away with completely commercialising HE. But, you know, the fact that they did is an, ir an irreversible process. You know, it doesn't mean that we can't, it doesn't mean all that stuff can't be challenged. And, yeah, and historic, you know, comprehensive, comprehensive schools didn't come out of nowhere. You know, comprehensive schools were a political project that people had to fought, fight for for decades before they got them. You know, free education, universities being, you know, open to anybody who hadn't gone to private school, you know, didn't come from nowhere. It was, it was a political project that people had to fight for for decades to get it. And so we are going to have to fight for decades i'm afraid now to get the education system we want but it's the, but uh, that none of this should be taken as evidence that we can't possibly get it it's all right i got four years till retirement it'll be fine <laughs> <laughs> 20 years of graft and 20 years of bliss yeah oh my god <laughs> yeah um, uh, yeah no, i think that's um that's a good place to end it. I was going to say, so what you're saying is that if any kids, uh, we meet any kids that want to be a lawyer or do business studies, we should just try and shame them and guilt them out of that process just yeah. to try and rebuild that yeah, culture. Definitely. Of, uh, of, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Wow, great. <laughs> um, yeah, don't, don't, don't warn them if they study something they love, they'll end up a teacher. Yeah. <laughs> I just try and tell them that everything's going to be automated. That's, that's what I've, that's that's one of my one of my tricks. Yeah, it doesn't make any difference. There aren't going to no. be any. Tricks. That's why I keep telling my daughter, now, the thirteen-year-old. I keep telling you shouldn't worry. What I don't care yeah. what the school says. There aren't going to be any jobs anyway. So you might yeah. as well have a good time. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, should we wrap it up there then? Yeah. Thanks very much, guys. That was really nice. Um, so that was that was a brilliant conversation, Jeremy. Thanks, um, thanks for coming on the pod. Um, and um, yeah, a lot to go back and listen to and and think about. So um, yeah, maybe maybe have you back on again for another sort of more specific thing. So I can't I can't think of anyone else who can go through the uh, go through the decades of education and culture and policy and things like that. Um, <laughs> no so, problem. Well, thanks very much. Cheers, mate. Uh, You've been listening to Requires Improvement. I've been your host, Nick, and I've been joined by uh, Jeremy Gilbert and Lee. See you later, guys. And Charlie. Hey, you can listen to us on Spotify or iTunes or SoundCloud or um, various other uh, podcast apps. I don't know what they are. Some of them seem to have us on, but we, we didn't do anything, so that's good. Um, it would really help us if you give us a rating or give us a share. Share us with other parents you know, other teachers or other educators that you know. Um, follow us on Twitter on at RequiresPod. Uh, and if you enjoyed any of our shows, why not send us a message and make us feel better about our very difficult jobs and um, fairly painful lives? That'd be really nice. Bye-bye. Uh,